We're in chapter 4. In fact, we're completing chapter 4. We've been talking about the nature of faith. And um, Paul uses two, in, in fact, let me go back. Paul uses two individuals to describe the fact that God's plan of salvation is received by faith alone in Christ alone. And to demonstrate that to the Jews especially, he chose Abraham, who is the father of the nation and is regarded as one of the most godliest, godliest of the men, Jewish people, to show that even Abraham was, himself was saved by faith. Then he chose David, who was considered to be a great sinner. Uh, he also was saved by faith. And so we ended up last time with this slide, if you will see it in your notes, Paul has contrasted salvation by works with salvation by faith. That's why this book is such a tremendous treatise here. Paul deals with all of these issues in a magnificent way. He contrasts works, salvation by works with salvation by faith. He contrasts salvation by trying with salvation by trusting. He's shown uh, that as illustrated by the greatest saint of all times, Abraham, the father of national Israel, and the greatest sin of all times, David, the father of the royal line. Remember now, all of these have to do with the top echelon of Jewish uh, um, genealogy, if you want. And he's trying to show that they were saved by faith alone and Christ alone, apart from the law. The founder of the royal line, salvation and the receiving of God's righteousness come only by faith and trust in the person and work of Christ. Salvation is by faith solo. That's the words of who? Modern, modern Luther, which means only and alone, nothing else. All right? This is the dividing line between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. Faith in Christ alone brings us salvation. Nothing else, no works, no sacraments, nothing. That's what we looked at. Now we come to uh, another section concerning justification. He's dealt with salvation by faith in chapter 4. Now in chapter 5, he comes with the blessings of justification. The blessings of justification. And so I say here, having established the fact that justification came by faith in Jesus Christ alone, apart from any human effort whatsoever, Paul now goes on to discuss the results or consequences of justification. We have it. How do we live it? How do we demonstrate it? What has it done for us? What it, will it do for us? How does it impact our lives? Again, this shows the tremendous expertise of the apostle in describing the gospel. He doesn't just say, yes, you're saved. That's it. He goes on to show now what that salvation is supposed to result in. First, he says in verse 1, we have peace with God. Notice, we have been justified through faith. Notice, we have been justified. Past tense. It has occurred. It's not we will be justified or we are being justified. 
That's the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. We are being justified. It is a process. And we still don't know until after we get in the presence of God. But we have peace with God. This is where propitiation, remember we talked about that word, propitiation, what does it mean? Satisfaction. We have peace with God because God has been satisfied with the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Now listen, that's a wonderful thing. We say it again and again and sometimes we just take it so casually. But this is a tremendous statement. We have peace with God. We're not at enmity with him anymore. We're not at war with him. We have peace, tranquility with him. Shalom. It's not just the absence of peace, but the experience of joy. And it's all because of Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? It's all because, nothing we do, nothing we do. It's all because of Jesus Christ. We have much to be thankful for here. Therefore, since we have peace, we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, as I've said, our war with God is over. Now, keep this in mind. The Bible says that we were enemies of God, right? Does it say that? Yes, we are enemies of God. But it never says that God is our enemy. God is not at war with us. We are at war with him. It's very important for us to understand that. But once the settlement was made through the death of Christ, then we were in a position where we could be saved. We could have relationship with him. And so we no longer resist his grace or his demands. We have accepted his terms of reconciliation and amnesty. We have laid down our spiritual arms of resistance. We have surrendered to our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the terms we're using here when it comes to being enemies. The tense used here is what is called the aorus tense in Greek. So we can teach a little bit of Greek as well. Right now, so Carolyn, you could get me straight if I make any mistakes here. This refers to a specific time in the past when an event occurred. A point in time is like taking a snapshot, not a movie. A movie gives you something that is m moving, right? A snapshot is a boom, it freezes it. It's something that has happened. That's what he's saying here. So what Paul is saying is that as believers, we are justified. We are and have been declared righteous by God the moment we place faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, it refers to our state, our position. We are in a permanent and eternal position or state of peace with God. Now, please let that settle in your minds. We are in a permanent and eternal state or position of peace with God that cannot be disturbed. Do you get that? That cannot be disturbed. We're talking about our position, our state, our condition cannot be disturbed. Why? Because it is God who is in charge of it. It is God, God, who has brought it about. This is a tremendous passage. When we want to talk about eternal security, you go here, and all to Romans 8, as this, chapter, this section ends up with. It's a tremendous treatise 
on our position in Christ. But not only do we have peace with God, verse 2 says we have access into grace. Boy, it's just amazing that so much could be said in so little space. Now, you know I haven't learned to do that yet. But look at it, through whom? Who's that? Christ. We have gained. We have access. Boy, that's a beautiful word. That's why, see, whenever we pray, that's access. Access into the presence of a holy God. You've got to remember that. But it's by faith. Pardon? It is. It's a privilege. No, you got it on the head. We have gained access by faith, not what we've done, into this grace in which we now stand. In other words, our position, our standing is all based on grace. Faith through grace. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, past, present, and future. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Notice, in which we now stand. That's our state, that's our standing, that's our position. It cannot change. God is responsible for maintaining this condition, not us. Now you gotta be, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta grasp this man. We ain't got nothing to fear. We ain't got, you know, as far as our relationship, it, it cannot be touched. I was so sad the other day, well, today, I got a call saying that a young man used to come around here for a little while. He used to come out to the men's places, to the men's Bible study as well. I got to get you guys to get after him. We hadn't, he hadn't been around for a little while. He was a little close to Pastor Arnold, so Pastor Arnold called him up. told Pastor Arnold that he is now attending... Seventh-day Adventist Church. He says because he learned that we are preaching heresy. And he says he wanted to be a preacher and he wanted to preach the truth. You see? And say he just learning about the Sabbath now and that those who don't uh, worship on the Sabbath, you know, they just ain't there anymore. And this young man, Kinson, has been coming to our place for over a year. You know, coming to church. You see? But now his state, his condition is all moved. Somehow, in all of that, he didn't get grounded. And I, it's amazing to me. You see? That's why we have to understand Scripture. Is this real? You see, this is real. Your, your position, your faith in Christ should not move if you understand this. You see? God is the one who is responsible. Now, access means introduction or bringing into it. It speaks of a present experience and an ongoing blessing. In other words, this is one tense here. It's not that we had access in the past and then only had that one access. This is an access that started in the past, past and it continues to go on. We are always having access. Actually, this is what Jesus was sort of taught, the idea in Revelation 3 when he says you go in and out and have, and he, he will sup with me and I with him and, and so on. 
this is what it is. That kind of access into the presence of God, you see. We always have access into the blessing of God through Jesus Christ, right now. And notice, it is this blessing that provides us with the hope of experiencing the glory of God. It is this hope that motivates us to rejoice. I want you to see that our rejoicing is based upon our knowledge of our position in Christ. Reason why many Christians are not rejoicing is because they do not understand their position in the Christ, in Christ, who they are because they are in Christ. Now, of course, we have some people who teaching this truth, but they go into extremes. They come to it because we are in Christ, we are Christ. Because when Christ, he did this, I could do it too. You know, he walked on water, I could walk on water. He raised the dead, I could raise the dead. He brought something out of nothing, I could bring money out of nothing. Now that's extreme. But we do have a standing in Christ. And it's a blessed one, it's a wonderful one. And it's all because of the fact that we have been justified by faith in Christ. All comes through faith in Christ. Not in keeping the law, not in trying to uh, be good, not in joining a church. It's all because we realize that Jesus, the sinless Son of God, voluntarily took our penalty upon himself on the cross of Calvary. He who did not sin paid the penalty of sinners on the cross. He took your place and my place. And because of that, we have access into all that the grace of God gives us in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, if there's anything that should cause us to lay our heads on our pillows tonight and sleep peacefully is this. Because we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified by faith, we have peace with God. And as a result of that, we have access into all that the grace of God offers us. Tremendous truth here. Um, I read. A, I have a little thing, and I gave you all of this in the notes. I wasn't going to give you this first, but I figured I'd give you everything I got. See, you see how nice I am? I give you everything. I read a beautiful illustration of what this access into God's grace by faith in Christ means. It's a very simple illustration. A little beggar boy with dirty clothes and grimy hands, was seen one day looking through the iron rails of the massive gates that enclosed the royal castle in London. He held, on, he held on to the rails with his dirty hands and called the guard to let him see the king. The guard took his spear and pushed the little boy away. But as he was doing so, a young man came by, took the dirty hands of the little boy in his hand, walked him through the gates, and as he did so, all the guards stood at attention and saluted him. The young man was the Prince of Wales. He took the little beggar, passed all the guards, and right into his father's presence, and introduced him to the little beggar. He had access, that's the, that's the, Duke, the Prince of Wales, he had access into his father's presence, as well as a little boy whose hands he was holding. That's exactly what Christ does for us. He takes us by his nail-pierced hands, and takes us right into the presence of his father. We have access into the presence of the King, through the Son of the King, Jesus Christ himself. Isn't that wonderful?
Isn't that wonderful? That all makes me want to cry, eh, Clinton? That is beautiful. And that is so true. That is what it, that's what access means. And it's because Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, has taken hold of us and put, carried us into the very presence of God. Amen? Fantastic. Another point now, in verses 3 to 5, we have a new attitude towards suffering that leads to Christ-likeness. Now, we're still talking about the results of justification. Peace with God, access into the very presence of God. Now, we have a new attitude towards suffering that leads to Christ-likeness. Now, this is beautiful. This is really wonderful. Now, this is the first specific mention of love and the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans. Chapter 5. Notice what is said. God's love is manifest, exhibited, shown, demonstrated within us by the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. Actually, that should be manifested out of us or by us by the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. In other words, the love of God that has been given to us because of our position in Christ that is a part of our DNA, our genes as believers, that love that is inherent. Do you know you cannot be a believer unless you have love within you? Do you know that, eh? God is love. God indwells us. You cannot be a believer without that love residing within you. The big problem is how we let it out. See, where we fail is we try to let it out ourselves. But what this verse is telling us is as the Holy Spirit who does it. He's the one who's been been assigned to manifest God's love, to pour God's love out of our lives into others. That's why we cannot wait till we feel like loving. We have to love when we're told to love. When we have that impetus, that motivation by the Holy Spirit. You see what I'm saying? Think about it a little bit. How many times have you all driven down the road and you come to a corner and here's this dirty old beggar? What comes to your mind? Most of the time. What do you think about You all feel guilty or something? I mean, you could share. Be be amongst friends. Huh? Lock the door. What else though? Is that the only thing you feel like? Well, now forget what the Bible says. I want to know how you feel. Okay. Oh, good. Okay. Anyone else? But don't you sometimes have that well, before I say it? What, what, anybody else? Mm. 
you're still passing by. Well, see, that's from Gennad. Don't you most of the time feel you... Go, go ahead, Ed. Or it annoying. But anything else beside that? Exactly. No matter how bad or negative you feel, most of the time is feeling, boy, you know, maybe I should do something. I wonder if I should. You, you know what I'm saying? But I got to justify not doing it. So, boy, if I give him that, he can go buy drugs. You, you, you know what I'm saying? But deep down inside, you won't stop. You won't do something. Isn't that right? I mean, that is true. I mean, that's how I feel. See, my point is this, though. The Holy Spirit lives within us. He is the one who's responsible for us to show us how to love the way Christ loved. He does that by prompting us. I use that illustration because many times I believe that little feeling of sympathy you call there is the Holy Spirit telling us we need to do something. Now how to do it, when to do it, um, you've got to work that out. I've got, I've got different plans myself. Because you know you can't stop to give to everybody. But you can do to some. Even if it does take a little extra time. And that's one of the things I decided. Even if it takes, even if I hold up the guy in the back for a minute, I'm going to do it. Now, I made that decision. I do other, I, I have some things like little uh, biscuits or food or sand or something that you stop, I could give. There's one or two people I know who was really in need of that. So when I talk, I just don't give them 50 cents or a dollar. I have a $10 bill or a $20 bill I would give them because I know. And they are very thankful. They are very, they're very appreciated, of course, you know. And, and so I have different ways that I have decided as a result of this same kind of teaching from the Word, how do I respond to these things that are so difficult? We just cannot keep passing by them, say, I don't know what to do. Make a plan. You cannot deal with all of them, but you can with some of them. And if you have a plan, you can do it. You understand, you understand what I'm saying? And to me, that's giving in to the prompting of the Spirit of God who's trying to show love. You see? We have got to be able to distinguish the spirits. What is our motivation? What, is it the Spirit of God? Or is it the Spirit of selfishness? Or whatever it is. We need to be able to understand when it's the Spirit of God prompting us to show love, even though we might not feel like it, even though it might be difficult. You see? All right. Let's look at this verse. Paul is saying that the blessing of justification through faith in Christ includes a changed attitude towards suffering that results in Christian ministry and maturity. A changed attitude toward suffering because of the fact that we're being justified. First, he says, we can rejoice in suffering. He says, not only so, but we also rejoice in our suffering. And that's one of the most craziest statements I've read. You can read anywhere. Rejoicing in suffering? Remember what the scripture says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, as far as the heavens above. Here is, he's saying, now you are a changed person. You've been justified. You have peace with God. You have access into the presence of God. You have the Holy Spirit who can enable you to love. He says, now listen. Here's something else that has a change when suffering comes your way. 
rather than complaining and crying and criticizing and asking, God, why me? Why me? Why me? Rejoice in your sufferings. Now, is that something that is natural? Huh? No. Will you ever feel like rejoicing in suffering? <laughs> I know I don't. I can tell you that. Now, one little prick on my finger for any reason, I holler and boy. You know, and I would not. But here's the word, though, and it's all a result of, in other words, listen carefully. If we are truly justified, this is what we suppose to manifest. Now, why? Notice, because of the knowledge that comes with having access into God's grace. Notice he says, because we know. See that? If we don't know this, we won't be able to experience this. So now he's going to tell us what it means to really have access into God's grace. And this is going to bring on the truth. Remember, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Where? Or when? In times of suffering. Now, what are we talking about? Access into the grace of God. So when we have suffering, we have access into this grace that is sufficient. You understand what I'm saying? But you got to know that. Again, that's why I'm going to keep, you know, you think I might be a stuck record or what. you got to know the Word of God. I am convinced that the reason why, the major reason why so many Christians are living uh, spiritually unproductive, uh, joyless lives is because they do not know the Word of God, they do not know who they are in Jesus Christ. I'm convinced of that. You see? He says, because we know. Know what? We know that suffering produces perseverance. This is what a justified person knows. This is what a person who has peace with God knows. This is the person who has access into the presence knows. This is the person who's allowing the Spirit of God to show the love of God through him. They know that suffering produces. Notice that now. Perseverance. In other words, suffering is the process. Perseverance is the product. Well, actually, it isn't. It's just a greater part of the process. You're coming to the product in a moment. Notice what it says in 2 Corinthians 4.8. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Well, that sounds like me, you know. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. I ain't staying down, is what he's saying. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. This is a fantastic truth here. We want, how many of you all want resurrection power in your life? Well, you got to go to the grave first. You got to die. There can be no resurrection unless there's death. That's the point. We're going to see the whole principle. Remember Jesus Christ said, He endured the cross, despising the shame. Why? The honor of verse, Hebrew. For the glory that was set before Him. 
that glory set before him nullified the pain, suffering, the shame of the cross. That's what he's saying here. The life we always carry around in our body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Suffering produces perseverance. Now, perseverance means what? Huh? Continue. Stickability. Now, what happens to us when we got difficulties in our life or we have a sickness or an illness? What is what the first thing we pray for? Get out of it. Lord, get me out of here. Now, Paul is saying a justified person who knows his position in Christ ain't going to pray like that. Because we know something that others do not know. We know that sticking in there, going through that, produces something that is important to us. We know something that others don't. What does it bring? Perseverance produces character. Character. Jesus, te uh, Paul teaches the same thing in Second Corinthians, I think, chapter 3, where he talks about how God uses the trials and the problems we go into. And then we are comfortable of God. We use those experiences to do what? To comfort others. That's the same. That builds character. You see? Going through it successfully now. He's talking about going through it successfully. He's not talking about going through it and all you're doing is whining and crying and all of that. No, no, no. He's talking about going through it, persevering it, and still rejoicing and thanking God for the great salvation, even though here this pain is killing me, this financial situation is crushing me, this separation from my children, my husband, my wife, or whatever is killing me, but yet I am rejoicing. Only Christians can do that. Notice what James says. Consider it pure joy. Now do a word study on that word pure. You know what that word pure means? You know what pure means? Huh? Unmixed, unalloyed, that's right. There's another word that the brethren preachers like to use. The unadulterated word of God, you know? Unadult nothing mixed. Nothing in it. It's not like our water. This is pure, fresh, nothing in it at all. Pure joy. You don't mix this with little doubt, little apprehension. Pure joy, because God tells you to do it. Pure joy. Consider it pure joy, my brothers. Whenever, notice, whenever you face trials of many kinds, the King James says various or variated kinds or whatever, no matter what they are. Why? Notice the phrase again. Because you know, because you what? You know. Now see, we only know this through the word of God. This is why we could do, consider this pure joy. If you don't know these things, you can't do this. Consider pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith, now that word testing there, has to do with approving, proving something. It's a purification process. 
The testing of your faith develops what? Perseverance. Now notice. Notice this. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be what? Mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Spiritual maturity is based upon your ability to go through pain and suffering joyfully and to hang in there glorifying God through the entire process. That's what a justified person is supposed to do. That is what a person who has peace with God is supposed to do. That is what the person who has access in the presence of God is supposed to do. That is the person who is supposed to be manifesting the love of Christ through them is supposed to do. All right. But it also, character produces what? Hope. And verse 5 says, and hope does not disappoint us. Why? Because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Spirit whom he has given us. Boy, this is fantastic. Look at that word, poured out. He ain't just, you know, cut the top off whoop, and cut back off quick. He opens the thing wide, man. And he just let that love pour out upon us. God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given. Now, what does the Holy Spirit do with that love God has poured out in us? What does, he do? does he keep it in there? What does he do? He manifests it. He shows it out. That's why I'm saying be conscious to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Pastor Aubrey and, and honored myself go through some of this stuff sometimes. People come to help and boy, we know what to do. Because we know some of them lying out of the teeth. We know some of them trying to con us, you know. But we know, you still feel, boy, we should do something. Maybe they're not lying the way, maybe we just judge them wrong, you know. And so we go through this trying to discern what the Spirit of God is telling us, you see. And that's why I like to believe that we should always err on the side of love. Huh? Well, that might be true. That might be true. But you know, it ain't my money. It's Pastor Albee's money. And, 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 he, and he can handle our money, boy. No, but I'm serious. But, but I'm serious about this. Because in one sense, you're true, you know, Kinson. If we are really liberal and listening to the Spirit of God, we probably will be broke most of the time giving money to other people. Nancy's the first one. Nancy, a mile away, see somebody, she start opening a pocketbook. I am serious. She will give, boy. And I say, well, I mean, you got one dollar, two dollar? No, man, she don't, what? She don't do that? No. I got to tie Nancy down sometimes. She'll give everything out. Especially my conch salad and my crawfish. No, boy, I, if Nancy is a giver, I am telling you, she makes me ashamed the way she wants to give and so gives so freely. I'm telling you. She embarrasses me, man. Whom he has, notice again, he has given us. He has given us. It's a gift. 
All right? Now he illustrates that love in verses 6 through 8. First he says it's unconditional, unconditional in, in verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were powerless to help ourselves, Christ died for the ungodly. Tremendous verse. Right in the nick of time. And we can't do anything for us. That's why when you read the book of Hebrews, talking about the sacrifice of Christ, he says, he appeared when? Right in the fullness of time. Now, that's another interesting phrase, the fullness of time, man. Just at the right moment, right place, right time. He appeared. That's what this is saying. Just at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Died for me. Now, you only died for you if you would confess, admit that you're ungodly. If you think you're not ungodly because you're born into a certain family or you got this or you got that, then this voice is saying he didn't die for you. He died for all of us. Why? Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Right? He died for us. Without condition on our part. But God's love is also incomparable. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I just see something in this text I've never seen before. Boy, i got to look at that one. Anyway, what do you say? God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, when we had no thought of God, when we were running away from God, when we were denying God, when we were enemies with God, he died for us. We didn't deserve it. But he died for us. Then he goes on in verses 9 to 11 to show that God's provision in Christ is complete. First in verse 9 he says, we are saved from God's wrath. Now I want you to see how much truth is in the, you know, we're going through this quite fast. I, I want you to understand that. We're going through, there's some tremendous doctrinal truths and wonderful practical things in these verses. But we're going through it real fast. We are saved from God's wrath. Since we have now been justified. Past tense. Deed done. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? In other words, there is a wrath of God coming to be poured out against sinners in a greater way at another time. But this verse is telling us we ain't going through that. To put it in terms we understand more clearly, we're not going before the great white throne judgment. 
We are saved from that. You see, we are saved now and we are saved from that judgment to come. We will be saved from that judgment to come. We are assured of God's continuing provision. Verse 10, For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Now listen to these beautiful words. How much more? Paul liked those words. How much more? Having been reconciled, should we be saved through his life? And he says, look at what his death accomplished. Now have his death accomplished that, what do you think his life in us is going to accomplish? See, that's the point. In other words, we look at the cross and we say, boy, isn't that good? Paul is saying, man, the best is yet to come. His life. That's why I like to say sometimes, and I get criticized for it sometimes, sometimes we get hung up too long on the cross. We like just to stay at the cross. But Paul moves beyond the cross. Paul says, great, the work of redemption, Christ is completed on the cross. But the life of Christ then takes over. And he lives in us, empowers us to live like him. And I believe we need to put more emphasis on what it means to be saved through his life rather than having been saved by his death. Not that we don't work on it, mind you, but we can't stay there. This is why, you know, people, and I get criticized for this. Believe it or not, I get criticized. Uh, right, Harry? He ain't saying nothing. I get criticized. So you don't preach the old, old story of Jesus and his love. So you don't preach to tell people how to be saved. Sometimes I say, I don't know who you're listening to, you, you know, because I don't think there's a Lord's Day go by, I don't explain how to be saved. But what they mean is I don't preach what they call an evangelistic message all the time. They won't hear the old, old story of Jesus and his love, meaning people are lost, you got to be saved, come to Christ. That's all they want to hear. They want to stick. Stay on the cross. Now these people are Christians, you know. It's not the unsaved who are asking for this. It's the Christians who are asking for the message on the cross. But here's one reason why I prefer to preach to Christians not the message of the cross, but the message of the life of Christ. Christ living in us. We're going to see when we go to chapter 6 about our identification with him. And he was being, we, are buried, we are crucified with him, we are buried with him, and what? We are raised to him for what? Newness of life. Okay. Not only that, we can rejoice in a completed salvation, verse 11. Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We're back home. We're back into the fellowship of the triune God. Reconciliation is complete. Justification has brought it all about and has given us all of these blessings. We have a completed salvation. Signed, sealed, delivered. Now in verses 20, 12 to 21, he 
contrasts and compares justification and condemnation. He tries to show us the difference between being condemned and being justified. He begins in verses 12 to 17 with the contrast. Notice, now, now really, we could do a whole sermon. In fact, I have done a whole seminar just on this passage here. Because we don't teach as much on this as we should. This new race that God has brought into being. Notice, in Adam, man received what he deserved. But in Christ, man received what he did not deserve. Notice that phrase again much more. Paul uses that again and again to show how Christ and his work and so on far exceeds uh, what Satan has done through sin. But let's, let's take a look at this quickly. First, Adam's offense... Well, let, let, me, let me go back to this one because I didn't break down this as much. My problem here was how much detail to go into this. Into this. Because really, if you go into it in a lot of detail, you could spend years going through the book of Romans. But just let me look at some of these verses. Therefore, in light of what he said before, just as sin entered the world through one man. And notice, it doesn't say one woman. Although Eve was the first one who sinned. This has to do with the headship of Adam over the human race. They call it the federal headship. He represented the whole humanity. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. In this way, death came to all men because he represented all men. Because all sinned, the idea is all sinned in Adam is the idea. It didn't mean that all uh, sinned when Adam sinned the way he sinned. It means that he represented all, all right? He's going to bring in the story later about tithing in, in Hebrews, talking about Abraham, and he says that he, um, who was it who, in Melchizedek, tithed, uh, but also because he was in the loins of, of Abraham. That's the idea. Now notice, for before the law was given, sin was in the world. Sin was in the world before the law was given. It wasn't when the law came and then you only got sin because you broke it. No, sin was there before. But sin is not taken into account where there's no law. It simply means that it had no standard given to man. So how could you do it? Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. So in one sense, a certain law did reign. That was the law of death. Although there was no law saying, you know, thou shalt not sin or else you're going to die, you did die if you sinned. Because God said at the beginning, right? Remember that? Started right at the beginning. But there's no law other than the command or the mandate of God. Sin is not taken into account where there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, like the command of Moses. Adam, as did Adam. In other words, Adam didn't have a command like Moses. Now, he did have the command God gave, but he's talking about the law of Moses. Adam was a, now this is what I want to point out. Adam was a pattern of the one to come. 
He was a template. He was a model. He was a type. He's thinking about Jesus Christ. Adam is going to talk about first as the first Adam, and Jesus is going to be seen as the last Adam. And we're going to say last because there's no other Adam after Jesus, because they both represented humanity. Four, if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? How much more? In other words, God's work through Christ is more than sufficient to take care of what Adam did. You see? Beautiful statement. Now, secondly, Adam's offense brought condemnation, but God's gift of Christ brought justification. Verse 16, again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses, trespasses and brought justification. Adam sinned once, condemned the world. People were sinning all the while, all kinds of laws were broken, all kinds of sin happening. But yet Jesus died once and he took care of it all. Beautiful, beautiful truth. So to trying to compare now and con contrast the work of Adam and the work of Satan. Uh, I'm sorry, whew, the work of Jesus. All right? Trying to both compare and to contrast. But the, what he's setting it up for is to explain that Adam represented the human race under sin. Jesus Christ represents the human race under grace. All right? That's what he's setting up the time for. Thirdly, death reigned through Adam, but in Christ the righteous shall reign much more. Or 17. Four, if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more? Will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life to the one man, Jesus Christ. He's just repeating again and again the truth that no matter what it is that came about as a result of Adam's sin, because of disobedience, Christ's one act of obedience not only wiped it out, but overabundantly provided grace for the sinner. We have much more in Christ than we had in Adam. See the boy? We are saved to something greater than what we were condemned to under Adam, is what he's saying. Beautiful, 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 beautiful. This is powerful preaching stuff here. Death reigned through Adam, but in Christ the righteous shall reign much more. That's the contrast. Let's look at some comparisons now in the last three, four verses. One. Adam's disobedience brought condemnation, but Christ's obedience brought life. Verse 18 says, Consequently, just as a result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also, it's a comparison, so also, the result of one act of righteousness 
was justification that brings life for all men. Jesus is putting everything right that Adam put wrong and he's doing it in a greater way. Just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all, so also the result of one act of righteousness, that's the death of Christ, was justification that brings life for all men. Beautiful scripture. Secondly, Adam's disobedience made many sinners, but Christ's obedience made many righteous. Verse 19. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. Again, I want you to see how Paul is using Adam as the head of the sinful race and Jesus as the head of the redeemed. Number three, where sin increases, grace increases much more. The law was added. Notice, it was added so that the trespass might increase. This is a powerful statement. The law was given so you could know what sin is. And people could know for sure what they were doing wrong. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. No matter how much sin pervaded, became pervasive, grace was even more pervasive. Covering it, wiping it out. That's a beautiful truth. That's why it still is true. No matter what the sin may be, God's grace, God's grace through the blood of Christ is able to cleanse it. Isn't that wonderful? And I don't care what it is. I don't care what it is. God's grace is able to do it. Number four, Adam brought sin and death, but Christ brings righteousness and life. Verse 21. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that beautiful scripture? These are wonderful scriptures showing the complete and the absolute work of Jesus Christ being more than sufficient to take care of what Adam has done through his sin of disobedience. Now we come to uh, another uh, major section in the book. We were dealing with justification, all right? Now we're coming with sanctification. Justification, uh, we can describe as meaning um, having been declared righteous before God. Now sanctification has to do with how we live righteously before God. It's, and we're going to see there are two aspects. One we call uh, positional and the other is uh, progressive sanctification. All right? But I put it here, how to have victory over sin, because that's what the bottom line is. And so, let me go through some of this. I'm not sure we're going to finish it. Having just emphatically stated that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more, to show that God's grace is more than able to save anyone, 
regardless of their past or present condition, Paul proceeds to answer an anticipated question from the rationalists. These are people who like to take what Paul is saying and try to argue them away from a rational point of view. But he wants to show them that a true believer cannot make a conscious decision to continue living a sinful life because of the simple but profound fact that the believer is dead to such a lifestyle because not only has Christ delivered us from the penalty of sin but his death has also delivered us from the power of sin. Paul is telling us here we must know and apply these truths to be victorious. And he begins by explaining the necessity of knowing I want you to see how much emphasis he puts on him knowing of knowing the significance of the death of Christ as it relates to the believer. This is, and Kinson is right, this is one of the most important sections. Now, we really need, you know, I wish I could teach you this truth. But in the final analysis, it's only the Spirit of God who can teach you this truth. I can lay it out and say it, but as far as implanting that truth upon your soul, your spirit, it's only the Spirit who can do that. And I can tell you this, if you get this truth really implanted within your heart, your soul, it will change your life. It changed mine. There's no doubt about that. This truth in these passages here is um, one of the passages that changed my life as a young believer. Right here. And I'll explain that as I go along. First, the significance of the death of Christ for the believer. This is what Paul is saying. They share, that's the believer and Christ, share, the believers share in his death positionally. That's something God has done. Now here is the truth. You've heard it again and again. The believer died with Christ. His death is our death. Have you heard that before? Have you heard that before? Sure you have. But do we, have we really gotten into the true significance of what that means? Notice how he states the truth in verses 1 and 2. What shall we say? And remember now, he just finished emphasizing the fact, I don't care how great the sin is, how tremendous, awful it is. God's grace is able to take care of it, right? You know, I don't care. Now you see we have some people say, oh, is that true? If that is true, then I could live any way I want because God's grace can cover it. Actually, actually some people were saying, I could glorify God by sinning because I will be able to show his grace in my sin. So the more I sin, Sin abounds, grace does much. That, so Paul argued, these, what shall we say then? You see, he's taking the question from these people. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We die to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Paul, this, this version here, by no means, is a little timid. Yeah, yeah, this verse is a little timid. You know, Paul, the King James, I think, says, God forbid. You know, today, man, you must be joking. You, you know, that kind of a thing. You know, 
you, this is impossible. This statement is foolish for you to say. How can we go on sinning, Paul? We died to sin. How can we live in How can we die and live at the same time? That's what he's saying. He's dealing with the rationalists now. He's going back to them in a rational way. I just taught you that we've died with Christ. Now you're coming and that we are going to live in sin. He says, how can you do that? We died to it. Now this is a revolutionary statement here. God regards... Now Lord, please help us to get this. Please help us to explain it carefully. And I really want you all to pray that the Spirit would really get this truth home to you. Really, I want you to pray that. Because this is so, so important here. God regards the believer as being dead to the power and promptings of sin. It is impossible, therefore, for a genuine believer in Christ to go on practicing sin in his life. The word I want to emphasize is practicing. I'm not saying that we're not going to slip now and then, but I'm talking by the way of life. It's impossible for a genuine believer in Christ to go on practicing sin in his or, his or her life, not even if it were to magnify the grace of God. You know, I have people come into counseling and saying, and especially in marital situations, I've said this before, you know, where um, the mate is committing adultery, he's having an affair, and he comes and he says, well, you know, Pastor Lee, I got trouble with my wife. She don't treat me right and everything else. And God wants me to have my needs fulfilled. So I found somebody outside and my needs are being fulfilled. You know? And I believe God understands. That's what the phrase they like to use. I believe on God and he will forgive me. See, this is what he's trying to do. He's trying to say in the midst of that deliberate sin, God's grace is going to cover him. And therefore, it's, he's going to do it. And he still wants to say he's a Christian, you know. Paul says, no, 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 you can't say that. Paul is saying that these two concepts are diametrically opposed to each other. God's grace never allows or enables a person to go on living in a sinful state or practicing a sinful lifestyle. God doesn't give grace for a person to continue in sin. And Paul says the reason why this is so is because the believer is dead to the influence, control, and power of sin in his life. Now, I know this sounds crazy to most people. I know people say, me dead? To do, I'm dead to those things. But God says you are. Here's a little illustration I put in. Joe was a deacon at a church, and he and always had trouble with the pastor. But the pastor never got disturbed about it. He never got upset about it. This deacon always giving him trouble. And so one time he was asked, you know, how 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 you do this? I mean, this guy's always giving you trouble. Ten years now. How do you handle him? He says, I died to Joe five years ago. So don't make anything. He don't make any difference. He's dead to that. You see what I'm saying? He's dead to that. Doesn't make any difference. I have a personal experience similar. It happened in uh, Racine, and it happened with some church leaders too. Uh, one of them was an elder, others were other 
some were deacons and so on. They had a little problem with being Chinese or half Chinese, although they didn't want to say it outrightly. And as a result of that, there were little tensions here and there, you know. And I used to, I used to um, just let all go by. Now we just deal with them at all. So one time we had a meeting about it. One of them had some real problems with it. So we sat down and we talked. And we came to the point where all of them, all of us said, we're sorry, we forgive one another. I says, okay, as far as I'm concerned, this never happened. I remember about a year, a year and a half after that, something came up in a meeting, and we were talking, and somebody said, Now, Pastor Lee, you remember that time when these fellows were doing all that, and they did all this? I say, no, I don't. Now, I did, you know. But I said, no, I don't remember that. I'm sorry. I didn't remember it. Why? Because we said we had forgiven one another, and we would not take it under consideration. So as far as I'm concerned, it did not happen. That's what he's talking about here. You see, we have to learn how to live like that in our relationships to one another. The truth applied. Paul says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, now this is what, now again I say, this is what you've got to go through. I know you've read it. I know you've understood. I know you've seen it again and again. But this is holy ground we're on now. If you really get a hold of this truth, it can transform your life. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that, here now, this is the reason why. Just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too, along with Christ, we too may live a new life. Do you see that? Our identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ must result in a new life. And it's the same kind of life that Jesus experienced when he was raised from the dead. We're going to see what that life is in a moment. Notice, Paul expects believers to know, to apprehend this truth. It is an essential part of our Christian experience. We should know this. Now, we're going to explain this in a moment. It's not just intellectual knowledge. This, this is a knowledge that transforms our entire being, that controls us. And he gives two illustrations to explain the point he is making. Let me go through this briefly. Now, please... Pray that the Spirit of God helps you to understand it. And I mean that, please, because I can't, I really can't make you understand this truth. I wish I could. If I could have make you understand this truth, I would. <laughs> but it's only the Spirit of God who can make you understand this truth. So be open to what he's saying to you. Notice now, he says, we were baptized into his death. The word baptized really means united 
with Christ in his death. Kenneth S. Wiest, he was a renowned Greek scholar who is now with the Lord. He used to be at Moody Bible Institute. He gives this meaning for the word baptize. He says, and I quote, The word baptize is not a translation of the Greek word here, but it's transliteration. Transliteration means the spelling in English letters of the Greek word. The Greek word is baptismo. The word is used, this word, baptize, is used in the classics. This means outside of the Bible, usage outside of the Bible especially, is used in the classics of a smith. A smith is a person who works with iron and different things like that. Who dips a piece of hot iron in water, tempering it. In other words, the iron is hot, you know, he's trying to form it into something. But now he wants to set it in place. What he has made into it, you know. And so what he does, he puts it in water. And whatever shape he had put into it is solid. You can't change it anymore unless you heat it up again. But it's also used of Greek soldiers placing the points of their swords and barbarians, the point of their spears, in a bowl of blood. In other words, they take the point, put it into the blood or the poison. For what reason? So that blood or poison impregnates the point of the spear. You see? It becomes a part of the point of that spear. So when it goes into the enemy, the blood or the poison goes into the enemy. The meaning of the word baptized, therefore, is the introduction or placing of a person or thing into a new environment or into union with someone else so as to alter or change its condition or its relationship to its previous environment or condition. You get the point? Baptism means, actually another illustration, I'm not sure I have it here, is what the laundry people used to do in, in the day. When they wanted to dye a piece of garment, the water used to be boiled, the dye used to be paste, and then they used to take the garment, and what they used to do? Put it into the, they call it, uh, they, the dyeing, they put it in there, because when that garment comes out, what happens? If you put a white one into a red, what happens? It comes out red. It takes on that into which it was baptized. You see? That's what is meant by being baptized into the death of Christ. We take on what the death of Christ meant to him. It means to us. Did you get that? And so when you look at Christ and his death, you've got to see you there too. See, that's where it goes. Let's go on though. Paul uses this word to describe the act by which God introduces a believing sinner into a vital and essential union with Jesus Christ thereby altering the sinner's condition and relationship with regard to his previous state and condition and placing him into a new environment in Christ and in the kingdom of God. In this state, 
the believer takes on as his own the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything that happened to Christ happened to us. That's what it means to be baptized into the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We are implanted. Well, that's another word I'm coming back. We are immersed into his experiences. The act by which the believer is placed into this new state and condition breaks all relationships and associations with the old sinful state and condition. That's why we are called what? A new creation. Old things are passed away. All things become new. Why? Because we have been completely identified into that which we have been baptized. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now notice this carefully now. Because this, this, this is, is... We are what Christ is when it comes to our relationship to sin. Did you get that? Say that to yourself, man. We are what Christ is when it comes to relationship to sin. This happens when we place faith in Christ for salvation. Paul wants us to know this. In fact, he says we should know it. In fact, he says we must know it if we are going to be victorious Christians, if we are going to live the life of Christ, or we'll actually have the Spirit live his life in us. So he says, first of all, we are baptized. But that isn't sufficient because that doesn't give us enough. I mean, you'd think it would, eh? This is heavy stuff. But he gives us another illustration. He says in verse 5, according to the uh, NIV, it says, if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. See that word united now? Actually, it says we were planted together with Christ. That's what the King James Version says. And I like that. We were planted together with Christ. The best word, though, I think to be used here is the word grafted. We were grafted into Christ. Whereas the concept of being baptized into Christ presented the idea of being placed, in, placed into a different environment and taking on the characteristics of that environment, the concept of being planted or grafted into a living plant gives the idea of sharing the very life and nature of the plant. In actuality, now listen to this, the graft becomes a part of the tree. Everything, therefore, that is true of the tree is true of that which is grafted into it. Are you getting this? Paul is saying we are grafted into Christ. Now, we like that. But what he's saying here is we're grafted into his death his burial, 
on his resurrection. What I'm hoping that you would see here is that Paul is saying that everything that happened to Christ, in fact, to be truthful, what Paul is saying here, everything that has happened to Christ from his death, burial and resurrection, even up to ascension, is happening to us. Did you get that? And he's using these two illustrations of baptism and grafting into to give us the picture. New location, but there is a life there. You see. Now, when Christ was raised, he was raised into newness of life. Meaning that his life is now only lived unto God. That's how you and I are supposed to be living. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, no, 2 Corinthians 5, I think, where 5, is it when he says, uh, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, 5.17. In verse 14 or so, he says that we should live for the one who died for us. We should live for the one who died for us. Why? Because we've been grafted, we've been baptized into him. But now let's go on. This is what happens to the believer who places faith alone, in Christ alone for salvation. We are grafted into him. We actually become a part of Christ as far as God is concerned. Now listen to these words. These are, these are important. God sees us in Christ. When he died, we died. When he was buried, we were buried in relation to sin now. When he was raised, we were raised in the newness of life. We share in these experiences and their results as much as Christ did on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We need to experience that in our own lives if we're going to understand what sin means to God. And here is a statement I want you to get in your souls. Christ not only died for us, he died as us. Did you get it? He did not only die for us, he died as us. That's how he became our substitute. Now, what is the reason? I got to finish this before you all go home. What is the reason? Why did he baptize and graft us into himself? To free us from the power of the sinful nature inherited from Adam. Verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. Why? so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. This is some of the most glorious truths you can ever hear. And boy, i got to stop here. But I really want you all to get that. This is, this is the truth that transformed my life. Right here. The reason why we've been baptized into Christ, the reason why we've been 
grafted into his death, his burial, and resurrection, is that we might be victorious over sin. We would no longer be slaves to sin. We'd be free from the power of sin over our lives. That's the glorious truth of this passage. And I just trust that you continue to read and pray this over and um, see how it changes your life. You don't have to fight and struggle in this Christian life. We are on the victor side. We have already won. We are triumphant. If we see our position in Christ, He is alive. He's powerful. He has power over sin. And we are in Him. We share in that. But we got to know it and count it as a fact. But we got to stop here tonight and uh, we'll come back in 2011. <laughs>